Well, let's stand and we'll look to the Lord for his help as we come to his word. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come now unto thee, trusting thee, depending upon thee, leaning upon thee, for thy word to be given to our hearts this morning. We thank thee, O God, that thou hast given the word, that it is of thee, that it has come to us down from heaven, inspired by the living God, and Lord, recorded on these pages of Scripture in a way in which we can stand by them. We can stake our life on it. And so, Lord, we come to Thee this morning and we crave Thy Word to be opened to our understanding. And we pray, O God, that Thy Word would be given in a manner which moves our hearts, that imprints upon us the meaning of Scripture and the application of it to our soul. And that thou would lift us up from our time of worship this morning and that thou would take us out changed because we have heard thy voice. But O oh Lord, to this end we pray now that thou would give the help of thy spirit. That this entire uh, session of preaching of thy word would be owned of thee, would be used of thee. And that thou would even use it as the instrument in thy hand. That thou would, uh, Lord, even send forth the power of thy spirit Lord, to give life to the word. It would not be a mere intellectual exercise. It would not be a lecture that we would hear this morning. But, O oh Lord, it would be the word from the Lord. Grant it to us, we crave, O oh God. Open every heart. Open every heart to hear thy word preached. Lord, to receive the word in faith. And, O oh God, to search the scriptures and to search the word preach to to prove it to try it to test it whether it be of the lord and then so far as it is of thee then we pray O god that thy children would lay hold of it in faith and lord for any that are outside of christ we pray lord that this would not be as a sound of a tinkling cymbal and sounding brass in their ears but lord thy word would be a word that would give life come lord we pray Sanctify our gathering, we ask of thee. Shut out every distracting thought. Lord, suppress the flesh that would rebel against the word and would crowd it out with the thoughts of tomorrow and of yesterday. O Lord, help us, O God, to be riveted to thy word, to be waiting to hear what thou would say to us. Speak, O Lord, we pray. Give the help of the Holy Ghost. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're turning again this morning to the book of Joshua, back to this first chapter. Uh, with God's help, as we look to him and depend on him this morning, we will be taking as our text the remainder of the chapter from verse 10 to verse 18. We have already looked at the first nine verses of this chapter over the last number of weeks. And in our previous outings to the east side of Jordan, we have been watching on as Joshua has received his grand commission from the Lord. We surveyed that scene, noticing that by all appearances, it looked as though the work of God there in that wilderness was right back at the beginning. But we saw quite clearly that was not the case. 
And indeed, the work of the Lord had never paused at all. There had been no stop. There had been no step missed. Then we listened carefully as God laid out for Joshua just how difficult the work would be that lay ahead of him. Oh, we saw that this was going to be no easy ride. That the work that God has for his church is long-haul work. And we noted also that in order to succeed in God's service, there were two very simple requirements. Two requirements that were given to Joshua and those same two requirements that will never cease as long as the world exists. That was the direction to faith and to obedience. To believe God and to obey his word. All along through that time that we have stood there on that east side of Jordan listening on. We have heard interspersed through of the message of exhortation and encouragement and challenge. We have heard words of encouragement to the work. We've heard promises of prosperity and good success. As the church today, we noted how this scene is applicable to us. We are to be strong and very courageous in the work ahead for the church of Christ today. As we seek to go into all the world and to preach the gospel to every creature. As we seek to go over this Jordan and to occupy the land of gospel promise. We saw that this would require of us faith in God's promises. We need to stand by his word. And we saw that it would require obedience to God's regulation of the methods that we ought to use. Well, as we return then this morning to this chapter, we find that now God has stopped speaking to Joshua. God has finished speaking. He has finished giving this part of the commission to Joshua. And there's a notable shift in the action. The, the attention changes. Now we have Joshua. And Joshua is the one who is doing. Now Joshua's ready to get going. And we join him this morning at the very beginning of that. We'll consider then the verses we have in front of us under this title. Diligent work. Diligent work. Notice firstly that the work is initiated here with careful planning. In verse 10 and 11. Then Joshua commanded the officers of the people saying, Pass through the host. And command the people, saying, Prepare you victuals, for within three days ye shall pass over this Jordan to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God giveth you to possess it. Having been detained before the Lord, having been, as it were, held back, we could say, from, from going forward, from doing anything, not only for those 30 days of mourning where everyone waited, mourning the death of Moses, but also, as we've been uh, paying attention to over these last number of weeks, also during this time in which the Lord was commissioning Joshua, everyone's waiting, everyone's being held back. Well, we might expect now that that restraint is lifted, that Joshua would rush forward into the work, that he would get going straight away. But instead, what we find is Joshua, 
here is cautious and he's methodical in his approach to getting started. The verse begins in verse 10 with this word translated then. The word to us might indicate time as if that's the very next thing that happens. But it's not a word that really has that idea of time in view. It doesn't necessarily mean immediately or the very next thing that happened. In fact, there was almost certainly a delay between verse 9 and 10 in the history, at least long enough for the events of chapter 2 to take place. The spies being sent out, uh, the spies coming back again, hiding in the mountains while they were being searched for for a number of days, and so on. Uh, now commentators are disagreed on whether or not the three days in chapter 3, verse 2, are the same three days. I don't think it matters. Because what we've got here in verse 10 to verse 18 is really a summary of the beginning of the work. It's not necessarily a detailed step-by-step, time-marker-by-time-marker, what happened next. But what's in view here is a series of events that took place in preparation for getting on with the work, in initiating the work. We have a summary of that. Notice that the work is structured. Verse 10 says, Then Joshua commanded the officers of the people. There's no loose free-for-all in how Joshua goes about things. Rather, he begins he begins by giving order and giving structure to the people who will be doing the work. We're told that Joshua commanded the officers. And the idea is the same, exactly the same in what we read of in verse 9. When God said to Joshua, Have not I commanded thee? Joshua is passing on the commands that he has received from God. He's being methodical and he's being precise in ensuring that all that he has received, all of it, all of those instructions, all of those commands, all of those encouragements, they're all passed on, precisely passed on to the people. Now, the word commanded itself has this idea of instituting, setting up, of constituting something. Of course, here what he's constituting is the work ahead. He's laying down the ground rules, we could say. He's setting the pace. It's going to be a long work. It's not going to be a sprint. There's no rush, we could say. It's not a, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. <coughs> the officers that he is speaking to, well, we don't know precisely what is meant by uh, who these officers were. We couldn't name them. Uh, we couldn't detail that because there's different ways in which the word is used in the Bible. The first time we come across officers in relation to the children of Israel is actually back in Egypt, while they were slaves. And we're told back in Exodus that the Egyptian taskmasters appointed officers from among the people to be over the people, so that when they were doling out their orders to them, they had a command structure uh, through which to give those orders. Later on uh, in the wilderness, we read of Moses choosing out 70 men and setting them over the people to be judges to be elders. But the word officers itself has this idea of carving or scratching, of writing. In other words, keeping a record. Uh, so whoever the officers were, there's this idea in view that they would be like secretaries or magistrates. Uh, we know traditionally that Israelite officers had this responsibility of keeping detailed records of those ever-important genealogies. 
and also for mustering troops for battle. That's the nature of these, uh, these officers, the nature of their role, whoever they may have been. In all likelihood, the officers in view here would each have been responsible for a division among the people. Remember, there are 600,000 men there of, of battle age. 600,000 of them. And whatever your views are on management, you need some kind of command structure to get orders out to 600,000 men. And as we'll see in the next verse, it almost certainly included their families as well. So the two million people were divided up among these officers one way or another. This massive force of Israelites gathered there that day would have been arranged into battalions of some sort, organised around tribes or families. So the focus that's in view whenever we read, then Joshua commanded the officers of the people saying, pass through the host. The prominent thought is that of a detailed, careful, careful, methodical structure. He's organising things. So the work is structured. But the first task then that is given to this structured work is preparation. We read at the beginning of verse 11. Pass through the host and command the people saying, Pass over Jordan? No. Prepare. Prepare you victuals. From the command structure we now pass to the task that faced each unit, whatever way they were divided up, whether it was the individual or the household or the family or the tribe, every one was to make preparation. Get ready. The victuals that are in view, it's not simply food that's the idea here. Remember the people, even at this moment in time, were being fed by manna, which was dropped in the wilderness and they went out and gathered every morning. And it did them for that day and for that day alone. They're not being told to gather up three days worth of manna. In the ordinary run of things, as it, as it took place in the last 40 years, that manna would have been stale and rotten and worms would have consumed it by the next morning. So the idea is not so much about getting ready for the next day's meal. Make sure you've got enough food with you. The idea is more about preparing for this most significant one-way journey across Jordan and into the land of promise. It's a big deal. Remember we saw that before? There's a big job ahead. It's taking it seriously. It's getting ready for it. It's not taking anything for granted. Over a few chapters we read of the manna stopping. This is all about getting ready. It's all about preparation. This was a momentous event in the history of God's people. There's never been anything like it. Coming through the Red Sea was remarkable. But going into the land of promise. This is the, the greatest thing that has ever happened in the history of these people. <coughs> And so they were to prepare for it accordingly. Readiness and preparedness for what is to come. A diligence, in other words. Diligence in planning for this work. We see something of that uh, preparedness illustrated in the New Testament. Over in Luke 14, we have Jesus teaching the people about the cost of discipleship. 
the costs of following Christ. And he, he illustrates it like this. He says, For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? Lest haply, after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. There's a, a hint there of what we have in view of us here. Joshua, in one sense, has the same idea. The work has been revealed to him from God. It's God's work. This is God's work that they're about. God has said that it's going to be a long, hard, arduous road ahead. The first hard step, the, the, the most difficult thing that they can imagine, is right in front of them. And so the people are called to a diligence in planning for the way. They're told to think about it. And to make preparations for it. To get it in perspective. To make full use of the means that God has provided for them. To ensure that they are fully equipped for the challenge ahead. So we have this careful planning working its way out. The work is structured. It's methodical. The people are to muster their resources and to make ready. But, but, the planning itself is not the source of confidence for the people. Verse 11 continues, For within three days ye shall pass over this Jordan to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God giveth you to possess it. God's promise is at the very heart and centre of all the plans, all of the activity. Imagine the bustle in the camp as two million people get ready. Imagine the noise Imagine the activity, the busyness, the back and forth of it all. But at the heart and centre of it all, they haven't taken their eyes off God and his promise. It's not their methodical plans. It's not their tight command structures or their diligent preparations that they were to depend on. Rather, it is by faith in God's promise that they were to make their plans. Their work was to be a work of faith. They were to work. They were to be diligent. They weren't to be haphazard about these things. They weren't to just cross their fingers and hope for the best. They were to get going with it, get busy, but do it all in faith. The promise is restated here again from earlier in the chapter. Last week we saw that every time this promise is, is restated, there's a new detail added. We saw the promise was a general promise to a future generation and then it was restated as to being, being to this generation then it was restated again as being right at Joshua's feet. He would be the one that would lead them in. Well now we read that the time has come. Now we have this added. For within three days he shall pass over this Jordan. Within three days is a, is a Hebrew idiom. It simply means on the third day. The view here, or the, the, the idea here is this time, this three days was to be planning time, getting ready time. But then the day would surely come in which they would move forward. But notice the confidence. Notice it's a simple assertion of faith. Joshua is the speaker of these words. And he says, for within three days ye shall pass over this Jordan. That's a statement of certainty. 
There's no doubt about it. He doesn't say, for within three days, God might take us over Jordan. Within three days, we'll see what happens then. We'll just get ready just in case. No, he's saying, within three days, ye shall pass over this Jordan. A statement of certainty. But yet, even still, in the mind of Joshua, in the mind of the people, on the pages of Scripture, even still we have no information revealed to us from God as to how they were going to get two million people over the River Jordan. Not only getting them over the river, but landing right in the enemy's backyard. There's no information. There's no, there's no sense of how that's going to happen. It was one thing to send two men over the river. They could have swam across it. But two million people and all their stuff and their children and their elderly across the river. There's no information about it. And in fact, the, the method that God would use, the way in which he would take them across that river was not actually revealed to them until the very morning in which they were to go across. We find that recorded for us in chapter 3. So with no obvious means of crossing this great river, yet Joshua has this confident assertion of faith, ye shall pass over this Jordan within three days. It's going to happen. Meanwhile, we have all these preparations taking place. Two million people, not frantically, but busily, busily getting ready to go. And no one's saying, hang on a minute, you're all running about getting ready, how are you going to get across the river? What are you going to do when you get across it? No one stops to ask that. This is a work of faith. No one says, why are we bothering? Why are we wasting our time? What's the point in getting everything packed up? What's the point in leading the wagons when there's nowhere to go? No one asks that question. I think it might be one of those rare occasions in the history of the children of Israel and their exodus out of Egypt and into the promised land where we don't read of murmuring and grumbling and a lack of faith. It just shows us that they were to go, and they were going, in complete dependence upon the Lord. All of their planning, all of their structure, the focus was on removing obstacles, making sure that they were not the cause of holding anything back, making sure that they were not in the way, making sure that whenever God in his power, whenever he moved, that they were ready to go. That there would be no, uh, they would not be caught out in any way. They would not be a source of delay. It's not their meticulous planning, you see. That's not what they were depending on. They were depending all along on the power of God. Has he said that he's going to do it? He's going to do it. We trust him. Here we are this morning in this church, this morning we have had a reassessment of our situation over these past few weeks of the gospel work ahead of us. We know we're not back at the beginning again. We know there is a work to be done. We know there is a going out and a compelling them to come in. We know that the victory of the gospel in our day is assured. There is no defeat in the work of Christ. Yet, yet, notwithstanding the fact that God will succeed, we are not to just simply freewheel as a church. 
We're not to simply coast along waiting for God to do something. God was not going to go over Jordan and occupy the land for them. That was not what he promised. God was going to put them into the land. Yes, he would fight their battles for them. Yes, he would give them the victory. But it's them that he's going to give the victory to. All the planning, all the preparation, it's all important. It's crucial. Because we are God's instruments. The church of Jesus Christ today, we are the instruments that God will use to occupy this heathen land for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There needs to be every single member of the body making preparations. Not just the formal offices. The offices are important. But all of the various roles, all of the parts that every single member of the body can play. There needs to be the preacher, the elder, the deacon. Of course there does. There needs to be the pastor. But there also need to be those who will go into their own neighbourhoods who will go into their own workplaces, who will go into their schoolrooms and will reach people that no one else but them is able to reach. There needs to be men praying publicly in prayer meetings, beseeching God that he will move. But there also needs to be men and women and children in those same prayer meetings praying silently along with the one who leads the congregation in prayer. There needs to be those who visit the sick, who help a neighbour. There needs to be an army of workers doing an army of work. And remember here we have this congregation divided into battalions. It's uh, the structure of, of how we organise our church as a Presbyterian, as a Presbyterian governed church. There's lots that the New Testament has to say about it, but we see it in this Old Testament church. It was a Presbyterian church. They had their offices, their rules, their structures. There isn't a principle that we hold to today that we cannot find in this organisation in the wilderness. All of it takes organisation. It takes planning. It takes thought. It takes structure. But even then, none of it is going to look very successful right away. The success of this organization of God's church today of all that we do in order to bring people to Christ it might not look very successful at all it might take many years for the slightest hint of growth it might take more than a generation it might be future generations that reap or harvest the results might never be visible to this generation but all that that means it doesn't mean that we're not to make ready. It doesn't mean that we don't worry about victuals. It doesn't mean that we sit and wait for the other generation to come and do all the work. No, my friends, it means that we need to have our hearts ready for the long haul. Maybe that's the victuals that we need. To get it into our minds that this plan is a long-term plan, but it involves work. It doesn't involve wait. There is no standing still. We have to be prepared to do the work even though we see no outward success. We have to be prepared to invite people to church to hear the gospel preached even though they say no. Even though they get angry with you. Even though they might stop speaking to you. 
even though they cross the road and go the other way. We need to keep going. We need to keep asking. We need to keep doing whatever it is that God has given us to do. It's not always the right thing to be pestering people to come, but to live the Christian life before them, to be consistent in our walk, to be kind. Oh, whatever it is, whatever it is that God has put it within your power to do, do it for the sake of the gospel. That's the point. Be doing in Christ's kingdom. But in all of it, in all of your activity, it's not your, it's not your work, it's not your praying, it's not your organising that you depend on, it's on the Lord's promise that we depend he has promised that within three days you shall pass over this Jordan. Now we don't know how we're going to pass over Jordan. We don't know how long or three days will be. But we know that God will give the victory. <coughs> so we see that the work here is initiated with this careful planning. But the work is also inspired by conquests past. Look at verses 12 to 15. It begins in verse 12, And to the Reubenites, and to the Gadites, and to half the tribe of Manasseh, spake Joshua, saying. This requires a little explanation. Joshua is now addressing the two and a half tribes who have been granted an inheritance on the east side of Jordan. On the one hand, these tribes have already have their inheritance. But on the other hand, they were not yet able to fully enter into the enjoyment of it while there was still land to be settled, while there was still work to be done. The reference here to these two and a half tribes, it's back to Numbers 21. There the children of Israel had their very first conquest. They had won battles before. They had defended themselves before. But this was the first time that the Lord gave them land as a result of their conquest. The Lord gave them the land that had been in the possession of Sion, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan. In Numbers 32, this land was given to these two and a half tribes as their land of promise, as their inheritance. Numbers 32, verse 33, we read, And Moses gave unto them, even to the children of Gad, and to the children of Reuben, and unto half the tribe of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, the kingdom of Sion, king of the Amorites, and the kingdom of Og, king of Bashan. The land, the land, and the cities thereof and the coasts, even the cities of the country round about. You see, for the children of Reuben and Gad and that half tribe of Manasseh, this was their inheritance. This was their land of promise. This was their rest. In verse 15, it's referred to as that. The Lord hath given your brethren rest as he hath given you. It's equal to the land of promise. But what's the relevance of this now? Why is Joshua drawing attention to these two and a half tribes now? Well, this was a reminder of past victory. That there had already been a victory. Was, was unmistakable in the minds of the children of Israel that day. The very land on which they were now stood, where Joshua was standing that day, and where those two million people were standing that day, was the very land of promise. And it belonged to them. <coughs> the victuals that were referred to earlier in verse 11, they came from this land. 
They took of the produce of this land as their victuals. God had said that he would give the children of Israel the land for their inheritance. And now two and a half of the twelve tribes were actually in possession of the land. When the people then were marching out in their battle formation. And there alongside them they had those two and a half tribes going to battle with them. There was a visible, tangible token of the promised conquest of the land. How do we know we will succeed? Because they've already succeeded. It would serve as a reminder, however, of their entire dependence upon the Lord. It would not be their success. They would have seen that. Those two and a half tribes would have been a constant reminder of that. We will not succeed. The Lord will succeed. In Deuteronomy 3, we read this. And the Lord said unto me, Fear him not, for I will deliver him and all his people and his land into thy hand. Speaking of Og. And thou shalt do unto him as thou didst unto Sion, king of the Amorites, which dwelt at Heshbon. So the Lord our God delivered into our hands Og, also the king of Bashan, and all his people. And we smote him until none was left to him remaining. So when Joshua, in that, in that east side of Jordan that day, turns his attention on these eastern tribes, there was a clear reminder of past victory. But also there was a model for future victory. Think of how that verse, that last verse in Deuteronomy 3 that I read, think of how it ended. And we smote him until none was left to him remaining. None was left to him remaining. You have in those words precise obedience to God's command. In Deuteronomy 20, 16 and 17, we read this. But of the cities of these people, which the Lord thy God doth give thee for an inheritance, thou shalt save nothing that breatheth, but thou shalt utterly destroy them, namely the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, as the Lord thy God hath commanded thee. So in this reminder of the past victory with Og and Sion, we are given a model for the future conquest. Within this, there wasn't simply an example of how to do it though, but rather we have here a token of the future success, an earnest of it. It's a seal to the promise. Coming to Deuteronomy 31, Moses is giving his final speech. He's encouraging the people. He's exhorting them for what lies ahead. And here's what he says in Deuteronomy 31.3. The Lord thy God, he will go over before thee. And he will destroy these nations from before thee. And thou shalt possess them. And Joshua, he shall go over before thee as the Lord hath said. And the Lord shall do unto them as he did to Sion and to Og. Kings of the Amorites, and unto the land of them whom he destroyed. See how the promise of God is here specifically tied into that earlier conquest of Sion and Og? The settlement on the east side of Jordan, it's a perpetual reminder, a physical seal of the conquest to come on the other side of Jordan. It's a model for future victory, but it's also a witness to the heathen. 
This early conquest by the Israelites, it had this profound and terrifying impact on all of the other nations of Canaan. It's clear that the Canaanites had heard that the Israelites were on the march. In fact, we read earlier in Exodus or Deuteronomy, I think it's early in Deuteronomy, of how some of those Canaanites came out against the children of Israel because of the spies. that They had heard of the spies that had gone into the land of Canaan. So the Canaanites knew about the promise of God. They knew that the children of Israel planned to come and occupy their land. Perhaps for 40 years they had suspected them. They knew that they were there, but they could see that they posed little threat, walking around in circles in the wilderness, dwelling in tents. But now, oh, but now they had conquered the mighty Og and the mighty Sion. See what one Canaanite says of them in Joshua 2 verse 10. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And what ye did unto the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side, Jordan, Sion and Og, whom ye utterly destroyed. And as soon as we had heard these things, our hearts did melt. Neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. That's what the Canaanites were hearing. What a remarkable testimony then to the heathen world. The unconquered ter territories had heard of the early success of the children of Israel and they were terrified. They realized that Israel was a force to be reckoned with. Well, specifically, they could see that the Israelites were about God's work. They could see that this was gospel kingdom work. Now the application of that to ourselves today should stir us up. As a church today, as a congregation today, we stand on occupied territory. We stand on conquest land. The cause of Christ has had successes in the past. It has had conquests. And every single believer in this house of God today is a testimony to that. A living testimony that God has indeed made good on his promise to give an inheritance to his people. Every saint here already has possession of their inheritance and glory. Already there have been conquests of scions and ogs in the souls of hardened sinners. But that conquest work that gospel work is not over yet because there remain vast swathes of territory that have not yet been occupied. God still has his land of promise to occupy. There are yet elect souls to be saved. Though the world may look at the church today and it may look to them as though we are feeble wilderness warriors walking round in circles going nowhere, Posing no threat to them and their land. No threat to them as they, re, as they repose in their tents of sin. But then, but then they will encounter some sinner who has been conquered by Christ. And they just simply can't account for it. They know this person to have been changed. They can see that their life is different than it was before. They can see that there has been a conquest. And that something powerful has been at work in the life of that, of that sinner. 
and their hearts fail them. They might not tell you this. You might work alongside them. You might sit opposite them. You might go to school with them. They might be in your family. They might not tell you that their hearts fail them, but their hearts fail them as they realise that this Christianity that you profess is not so easily dismissed after all. Maybe there's someone here who's not a believer, but you recognise this thought. You know someone who has been converted. And their life has been changed. And they are so radically different from what they were like before, or at least they are so radically different from you. That you just can't deny that this Christianity is a fearful force. That's the witness of these past conquests in the hearts of those who are now believers. This morning then, each one of you who is a child of God is a living monument. A living monument to the promise that God has given to conquer this world with the gospel. Each one of you is a living witness to the power of God to save. The power of God unto salvation. And each one of you serves as an encouragement. Oh, if the Lord could so work in your life. If the Lord could so change you, child of God, this morning. If you have been redeemed. If you have been saved. Is he not able to do it? On the millions more? Were you such an easy conquest? For those who were saved in adulthood, perhaps living a rebellious life, can you look at the time of your conversion and not say, there was no prospects of my salvation. There was nothing in my life that pointed to me ever becoming a Christian. But yet the Lord conquered you. He conquered you for Christ. So here we have this gospel work inspired by past conquests. We'll wrap it up here this morning. We'll look perhaps at the remaining verses next week. But this morning what we see in these verses before us is this diligent work. There's a work for every child of God to do. There's a work for every office bearer to do. A work for every congregation to do. Yes, there's work to be done in here. There's preparation to be done. There's prayer to be offered up to heaven. But there's a getting up and there's a going out and there's a bringing them in. You know that the gospel will be preached in this house. You know that this evening, in God's will, if he spares every one of us, this evening in this house, the gospel message will be preached. Men and women will be pleaded with in the name of Christ to surrender to his terms of peace. Go out, friend. And bring some sinner into this house. Bring them under the sound of the gospel. Prepare ye victuals. For within three days. You will pass over this Jordan. May God bless his word. To our hearts. Let's stand for prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for Thy hand upon us this day. We thank Thee, O Lord, that as we stand before Thee, and as our lives have been changed, as our hearts have been changed, as we have been made new creatures in Christ, 
We thank thee, O Lord, that we are a perpetual reminder of past conquests, pointing to that future victory. O Lord, we pray that thou would use us, every one, that our testimony would be a testimony of the conquest of the gospel, that our very lives would be a living memorial to those around us, and that we are the children of the King, that our faith is no mere hobby, that our gospel is no mere interest, but it's our very life. We live and we breathe and we give ourselves to this work. But, O oh Lord, we pray that thou would use us as instruments in thy hand, that thou would help us, O oh God, to be those who would, who would be used in some way or other to be a witness for the cause of Christ, whether it be a silent witness, whether it be a witness in our own homes, whether it be a witness, O oh Lord, in our workplaces, wherever it might be. But, O oh Lord, that thou would use us as a beacon of light, that we, thou would use us, O Lord, to draw all men unto Christ, that he would be lifted up in our lives. We pray, O Heavenly Father, for this congregation, that even as this tribe, as it were, as this congregation organises themselves around the gospel work, give them a heart of prayer, we pray. Give them broken hearts for those who are outside of Christ. Give them hearts that cry unto thee and yearn for the gospel work to be done. And, O oh Lord, we pray that they would be up and doing in their own capacities, in their own vicinities, reaching people that only they can reach. And, O oh Lord, we pray for a harvest yet to come, a harvest of souls. Thou hast told us that the fields are white already to the harvest. We can't see them, Lord, but we believe that they are. And so we look to thee and we pray thee that thou would thrust labourers into thy vineyard. Yes, we pray for office bearers, but Lord, we pray for every child of God to be a labourer in this conquest of this land of gospel promise. Continue with us then now, we pray, and receive our worship as we offer it unto thee with our prayers. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Our final singing this morning is Psalm 98. Psalm 98, we'll sing from verse 1 to 6 of this psalm. <clears throat> psalm 98, singing from verse 1. A psalm, O sing a new song to the Lord, for wonders he hath done. His right hand and his holy arm, him victory hath won. The Lord God his salvation hath caused to be known. His justice in the heathen's sight he openly hath shown. He, mindful of his grace and truth, to Israel's house hath been. And the salvation of our God all ends of the earth hath seen. Psalm 98, singing from verse 1 to verse 6, to God's praise. Oh, sing a new song to
Yes, Stan, please, we'll ask the Reverend Parms to give the benediction. In the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, with you all. Amen. Amen. Amen.